This episode of No Place Like Home is being brought to you by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to get out there and explore, enjoy, and protect the planet. Join our 3 million members and supporters working to power this nation with 100% clean energy at sierraclub.org. And now on to this episode of No Place Like Home. Hi, I'm Marianne Hitt. And I'm Anna Jane Joyner. This is No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. Today, we're going to talk about storytelling and climate change, one of our favorite topics. And we have a great interview with renowned director Michael Bonfiglio about his new film, From the Ashes. It tells a very timely story of people affected by coal pollution, how we are moving beyond coal, and the importance of not leaving people behind as we make that shift. And it's a movie that I am in, along with lots of other amazing community activists from around the nation. But first, Anna Jane and I have some catching up to do. Hey there, Anna Jane. Hi, Marianne. Oh, it's so nice to hear your voice. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm digging the summertime. Ah, me too. Amen. We're Southern summertime ladies. And we also are apparently the car talk of climate action, according to Grist. So thank you, Grist, for calling us the car talk of climate action. High praise and welcome to any new listeners who found us from that very generous mention. We are happy to have you. Woo! Marianne, you have been on this epic journey. I've been following all of your adventures online, and I have to say I'm a little jealous of your trip back to Paris and all these other amazing places you've been. Tell us what you've been doing. Why have you been on the road so much? Well, I have had uh, the great honor of doing some trips with this new film, From the Ashes. We're going to be hearing from the director, Michael Bonfiglio, in our interview. And it's an incredible film that tells the story of the work I and lots of other folks have been doing to tackle the pollution from coal and uh, and move beyond coal, make sure we're not leaving anybody behind. And it has been screened in some amazing places. I got to go to Paris and the mayor of Paris hosted a screening for us, which was Trey Fancy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and also happened. I also uh, uh, celebrated my 15th wedding anniversary while I, I was that. there because what better place to do that. Um, and I got to attend the premiere and be on stage with actor Edward Norton at the Tribeca Film Festival and got, went to some other great screenings in Nashville and Los Angeles. And it was really, um, it was such a cool experience. And I'm honored to have been part of it, thanks to Radical Media and Bloomberg Philanthropies. And I am very happy to be back home in my little town in West Virginia, uh, drinking gin and tonics on the back deck in the summertime with my family. So, oh, Well, it sounds like you've had a magical summer. I'm jealous, but also just so happy that you've got to have these incredible experiences. And I, I love this film. I love this conversation we have coming up with the director. Um, I love that you've brought me into it <laughs> through this story, because this, this connection of film and creativity and storytelling and climate change is just my, like, you know, really become kind of my passion and continuing to have these conversations. So 
Speaking of that, um, we have an upcoming episode where we are going to dive deep into climate content and what we found to be really compelling. And when you say content for those non-communication-y people, what does that mean? What does it mean? That's a great question. Um, It means, you know, it means everything. But, you know, the way that we think about it is, you know, film is a form of content essays, long term, like long form essays, which we're going to talk about in a minute, poetry, you know, really any form of communicating around this issue. It's, it's kind of how we digest information. Obviously, there's a lot of social media content. And we'll get into kind of defining that and exploring it in this next episode. And we're going to get into it a little bit in this episode. So there's one particular piece of content that is causing a lot of um, conversation and drama in the in the climate world today and even beyond. And that is this new New York Magazine piece. It's kind of an opus around not just climate change, really the the worst case scenario of climate change. So it came out in New York in the New York Magazine. It came out today that it's the most read article in the history of New York Magazine, which is just incredible for a climate story. It also has kind of kicked up a lot of uh, controversy and really rich and even tense discussions within the climate space um, that we're going to dive into a little bit. I'm curious, Marianne, like because I know we both had kind of a similar response to it because we were okay. So let's just start there because I think this part of this is so awesome. Um, And, and so I read this and I was scared. I was very scared by it, but I would characterize it as being scared in a good way. And, uh, and so we could get more into what I think is like scared in a good way versus (laughs) a bad way in a minute. But I read this thing. I was like, Oh my Lord. I'm so glad I'm doing what I'm doing and working on this, but this is so overwhelming. I have a child who's going to grow up in this world. And I was like, I have got to go for a run. And so I went for a run and then I go on uh, Instagram later and there's Anna Jane, a picture of her in her running outfit. (laughs) Like I was so stressed out about this article in New York Magazine. I had to go for a run. And that was how I I just, you know, once again, affirmation that we are soul sisters. So (laughs) so it was scary to me, but I, um, I have long had, a complaint about communications about climate change that are depressing and demoralizing. And I think there's a kind of a good scared and a bad scared. And this is just speaking from my personal experience that a bad scared is the seas are rising, the, you know, deserts are drying out. There's going to be a huge national security catastrophe there. It's hopeless, right? Like we might as well give up. And I didn't get bad scared from this. I got good scared. I got the worst case scenario, no one is spared from the worst case scenario, including myself and definitely my child, but there's still time. That is what I took away from this, but it does not appear to be what everybody took away from it. Yeah, it was so fascinating to see the responses. Like I, you know, I studied communications in college. And even though I've done a lot of more traditional campaigning, I've really come back to being most fascinated with how we communicate about this issue. So I've totally nerded out on this conversation. And, you know, I really do think that in a lot of ways we have, we have good policy options. We have, you know, great technology um, that can help, you know, fix this problem. We have, I, I mean, I think the climate movement does an exceptional job with grassroots organizing and campaigning. For me, one of the big uh, things we haven't really figured out yet is how do we communicate on this issue to multiple kinds of audiences in a way that, you know, gets their attention. So there were two, so I'll start by saying there were two major kind of qualms with this story from within the climate community. So this is it. Um, this is people on, you know, on our team. 
One was that he got some of the scientific facts wrong, which it does appear to be truthful. But as far as I can tell, and they actually he just released a huge footnoted version today because, you know, kind of footnotes the entire article as far as science goes. I haven't dug deep into that or seen any scientific responses. But as far as I could take away from the science piece, there were a couple of minor points that um, he misinterpreted or didn't get right. The overall thesis and and the vast majority of the points that he was making is is kind of grounded in, in sound science, which is essentially if we do not do anything, we are screwed much faster and sooner than most people appear to understand. I agree. I mean, and I think, you know, he also described it in some very visceral and colorful terms, which I think, again, is why I was scared by it in a good way, because it, it kind of hit me in my heart instead of just in my head. And and that may not be something that all scientists are comfortable with, frankly, is sort of the taking a little bit of poetic license with the scientific findings. Oh, I love that. That was such an incredible way of describing. You know, he It was a really unique piece, you know, and this unique messenger, the New York Magazine. And it was this very lyrical and poetic, if terrifying, <laughs> approach to, to some scary scientific possibilities. And so the other part, which is related to this, is kind of the framing of the issue really rubbed a lot of people, including a lot of scientists, wrong, which is like, we shouldn't be focusing so much on the doom and gloom. That's paralyzing and demoralizing. We really should be focusing on, you know, the hope and possibilities. And that, to me, was just a riveting conversation because I've long felt that it's a little bit more nuanced <laughs> than, than just like it's one or the other. And you have to pick one. And if you don't do it right, then you're wrong. I think that it really comes down to knowing your audience. And in this case, it feels like the author did know his audience. He was appealing to liberal New Yorkers who kind of intellectually understand that we have a problem, but aren't, you know, mobilized and taking action on it. I think, you know, I think that fear can can be a motivating factor. I mean, certainly it's motivating for me. But when you look at, you know, I was thinking about like in World War Two, how did they mobilize, you know, millions and millions of people to make very real life sacrifices, even sacrifices of their lives and signing up to go, you know, fight this problem. And it wasn't just, oh, there's this thing that could be scary. We should all go all in on making sure it doesn't happen. It was like, no, we have an existential threat to our society and it's going to take everyone <laughs> to overcome this problem. There is, you know, still hope. And I, and I thought the author did still include some hope, even though it was it was a visceral and you know, scary kind of picture overall. You know, I follow a lot of the green groups on Twitter and a lot of the big climate organizations didn't really touch this at all. And I'm just, I know there has to be conversations happening in those spaces about this kind of breakdown in thought over, you know, theory of communication. Well, you know, at the Sierra Club, I mean, we definitely, because we're doing so much that is really moving the needle on climate change in a significant way, like, retiring coal plants and replacing them with clean energy, which is what I do, or getting cities to make commitments to 100% clean energy through our Ready for 100 campaign. So we definitely like to lift that work up. And I wouldn't want to speak for the whole Sierra Club, but I, for one, definitely feel like when we can break through and communicate the urgency of this to people, we should celebrate that. I personally feel like communicating the urgency of this has been one of the things we have really failed to do. Um, you know, there's the Yale climate communication study earlier this year that showed upwards of 70 plus percent of people are worried about climate change and think we should do something about it. But only 40% of Americans think that they will be affected by it. And if you don't think you're going to be affected by something, it's not going to be high on your list of concerns. And I feel like this article broke through 
that wall that we all have up of, well, this is a problem for my grandchildren and the polar bears and really made it feel immediate. And I haven't seen much else that has done that. And I think that that is one of the reasons that it was so powerful and effective. And, uh, you know, our friend Dave Roberts, who was on the podcast, had a really great tweet thread about kind of feeling disappointed that the climate movement didn't see this as an opportunity to enlist people in solving the problem and instead kind of turned into a circular uh, firing squad and started attacking the details. And, um, and you know, I, I actually share that sentiment because I, it, it definitely was, even for me as someone who works on this, it broke through my sort of defenses and I'm sure it did that for a lot of other people. And, and that is hard to do as we've seen on climate. And I think we'd saw, it's, it's something that we should be trying to do more of, not less. Well, two things that really struck me is I was started reading a bunch of the social science literature on this because I was curious, you know, just curious. And I was seeing a lot of it pop up. And there was this one article from this um, from this professor at Stanford that I can put in the show notes. But it kind of summed it up by nothing accounts more for the general absence of concern around climate change in the United States than the absence of strong emotions regarding this issue. And for me, that just like totally hit the nail on the head. Like this article created very strong emotions. So like for better or worse. And it grabbed people. It was, you know, it was a gripping piece of literature and journalism. And and I think that that is what we just have to try to do more of through, you know, through journalism, through content and films like From the Ashes, through through our you know communications in general around this issue. And it's tricky, right? Because you know, emotions can be manipulated. And we saw, you know, we see that on on the other side quite a lot. And, and progressives tend to want to shy away from that and just stick to the facts and stick to the data. But I do think that the reality is that people make decisions based on their emotional response. To date, a lot of the emotions around this issue is just, you know, people don't have an emotional connection to this issue. And I, I really think that's one of our primary kind of callings if, if we're going to get more people to care and, and to care enough to take action. And that really struck me. And then another thing that just I, I studied a lot about creativity and innovation. And one of the things that's really st- you know stuck with me is that to have true innovation, you have to have outside voices. And that can be uncomfortable, right? Because uh, like in this case, it's all these people, myself included, who have studied climate communications for years. And then you have this journalist from outside of our community come in, buck all of the rules. And his piece goes further than any other climate pieces I can can recall in recent memory. And it's it's confusing. <laughs> and it's like and there's a bristling there. Like they really felt like there was almost a dogmatic policing of the narrative that was coming from certain voices within the climate space that made me uncomfortable because I really think we need these new voices. And it's like if this journalist who wasn't a climate activist felt like this story was the most compelling story that he could write about this, and then his readers and his audience overwhelmingly confirmed that, then that's something that we should be paying attention to, and it, and it should kind of jostle up our perspectives and make us ask questions. Um, but we certainly shouldn't be shutting down. David Wallace-Wells, we appreciate you. <laughs> we, uh, we would love to have you on the podcast. But um, in the meantime, you know, one thing you just said struck a nerve with me. One of the criticisms I saw of this was, well, are we just talking to people in our own bubble? And, uh, you know, if this was the, which New York Magazine is saying their most read article ever, over 2 million people, that's definitely not just our own bubble. But even if the majority of those people believe climate change is happening and that it's a problem, I 
doubt they felt a lot of urgency around it. I doubt that they felt viscerally like I need to get up out of bed every morning and do something about this because, oh my Lord, my child might not grow up in a safe world. And this isn't a problem in 50 years. This is a problem today. And it's going to be a lot worse in five years if we don't do something about it. And so I feel like even if within the if you could call a bubble 70% of people who believe climate change is real and is a problem, if you can create more urgency within that bubble, that's one of the things that we need most. And I, so David Wallace Wells, we salute you for, for doing that so beautifully. It is a, and it's just a beautifully written piece. I mean, that's the other thing is a lot of the things out there written about climate are dry and boring and wonky. And this was emotional and visceral and gripping and you couldn't put it down bringing beautiful beautiful writing to this issue is uh, an artistry is similar to beautiful filmmaking it's something that is sorely needed and and we should be applauding it and not nitpicking it in my view and you know sure there are critiques you know let's make them and maybe let's not make them uh, in press releases and let's not make them on social media unless we really feel like there's something to be gained. But not, not to say that you can't, you can't have your critiques, but I think that this has just contributed a lot to solving the problem. And just one like final thought, and I could go on forever about this because I just find it so fascinating. I followed the author. He did a tweet storm this week that kind of like let people ask him questions. And his takeaway, and he kind of outlines it towards the end of the article, is that there is still hope and that this dire dystopian future isn't necessarily what we're barreling towards, (laughs) that we can do something about it. That was really what, you know, kind of galvanized him to write the article and to dive into this. It's both and, you know, like we do need to be legitimately scared, but we also have to do something or it is going to be that bad, or at least some version of bad. Which is the same thing. It's like, yes, this is terrifying, and there's something we can do about it. And and it doesn't. It isn't this dichotomy of either you write something scary or you write something hopeful. I think this. He was trying to do both, and at least that's the way I read it. And um, hopefully, people will take it that way because that's definitely the way I see the situation that we're in. Absolutely. On that note, we should jump into our awesome interview with the director from The Ashes, who actually just yesterday it came out that he's been nominated for an Emmy for one of his other pieces. So congratulations, Michael Bonfiglio. We're really excited to share this with you. In the meantime, listen to this. Hi, my name is Jean Matthew, and I'm from Columbia, Alabama. This is your dinner party climate fact for today. So far, 2017 is the second hottest year on record behind 2016. You nailed it. So welcome to our interview with Michael Bonfiglio, the director of From the Ashes. And let me just kick us off here with a little bit of background. Uh, So From the Ashes is a film that uh, I was in along with people from all around the United States who are tackling pollution from coal and trying to move the nation to clean energy and also not leave coal communities behind. And it was a real honor to be in this film. Uh, It was uh, produced by Radical Media and Bloomberg Philanthropies, premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival earlier this spring, and then premiered on the National Geographic Channel in June. And uh, 
if you want to watch it now, you can go to the website for the From the Ashes film. Uh, just Google that, and there's a Where to Watch button where you can find out where to watch if you haven't seen already uh, this incredible film. And it, it tells the story of people all around the United States who are dealing with the pollution from coal, which in addition to being our biggest source of climate pollution, which is of interest to our listeners here, um, it's also our biggest source of all sorts of other very nasty air and water pollution. It talks about the campaign that I lead that involves organizations around the country that are moving this country away from coal to help solve the climate crisis and all the pollution problems, and also focuses on efforts to make sure as we make that shift to clean energy, we don't leave behind people who've traditionally relied on coal in places like West Virginia, where I live. So it's some incredible storytelling. If you haven't seen it, I hope you will watch it. I had the, if you follow me on social media, you will see that I had the chance to travel to some pretty amazing places with the film, including to Paris, uh, where the mayor had a screening, uh, Tribeca with actor Edward Norton, to the Aspen Ideas Festival. So it's been an incredible opportunity to tell the story. And we're really excited to have Michael Bonfiglio on the podcast uh, to talk about his experience directing the film. So welcome. Thanks so much, Marianne. And um, it was such a privilege having you be such an important and big part of the film um, and getting to know you. So thanks for having me on the show. My pleasure. So I want to start with the first question. Uh, uh, You started this process two years ago before the election, before Trump became president, before Cole return to center stage in our national political debate about climate change. Can you tell us about the experience of making the film, what you learned along the way, and how you adapted to this radical sea change in our in our political landscape that came in the final months of making the film? Yeah, um, it's a, that's a, a lot of big questions. Um, well, the first, just from a technical standpoint, I didn't personally start working on it two years ago. I came on uh, a little over, well, now, now it's close to two years, but I came on in around May of uh, 2016. Um, but the folks at uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies had envisioned uh, a film about coal um, and had approached Radical Media two years ago. And so that's when the, the seeds of, of the film really began. Um, but I came on, uh, as I said, a little over a year ago and really knew next to nothing about the issue, you know, in terms of the uh, incredibly disproportionate effects that, that coal have relative to uh, the benefits that, that that it has on our society in present day. And so um, the whole project was a real learning experience for me. You know, I consider myself, you know, an armchair uh, interest, interested person in terms of um, climate. And I'd, I'd done some some previous things having to do with, with climate um, and the environment. And I, I certainly consider myself an environmentalist. But, but I, I really was uneducated in terms of coal in particular. And um, the whole experience was was a, a real eye-opener. You know, I'd, I'd heard about mountaintop removal and was aware of it and appalled by it, but didn't really know how intense the effects are. Um, I think like most people in the country, I uh, assumed that most of our coal came from Appalachia. And turns out that that's not even correct, that it, most of it these days comes from the Powder River Basin out in uh, Wyoming and Montana. Making the film was my educational process. And I, I th- hope that that my education, going from naivete to actually knowing a bit more about this stuff, um, actually comes through when you watch the film, that you can see this movie, really know nothing about the issues, and walk away 
much more informed about a whole lot of issues. First of all, I wanted to say thank you for telling the story. Um, you, you probably don't know this, but one thing Marianne and I share is we both kind of got hooked into the environmental world and then climate world because of mountaintop removal, coal mining. I grew up in Western North Carolina, so I have a deep kind of spiritual and emotional connection to the Appalachian Mountains. And um, so I'm just, I, and then I later got to work with Marianne on a Beyond Coal campaign in Asheville where we did retire our coal plant and it was so amazing and empowering. But this story has just been, deeply uh, affecting to me and my life and to my activism. So I really am grateful to see it come alive um, and be told to so many more people. But I'm curious, just as you were filming filming that, uh, if there were you know particular characters or stories that just really struck you, and also um, how did you choose the stories? Like what were the sort of ingredients that drew you to tell one story versus maybe not telling one, a story? Absolutely. Well, you know, as you said, like, I, I think, uh, you know, coal and climate change, they are really difficult. I think any time you're talking about an issue, it is difficult to make it engaging for people. And so that was a real challenge for this film. Um, when I was first approached to um, get involved in it, my first reaction, you know, is, like, hey, we want to make a documentary about coal. And I just thought, how boring, like, how can you possibly... <laughs> make that entertaining for, for an audience. It's a, it's a rock. There's nothing that, you know, <laughs> and I really struggled with, with deciding whether I thought I could make something interesting out of it. It seemed like, well, shouldn't this be a, a magazine article or something? But, you know, the more we thought about it, and again, you know, this, this was a very collaborative film um, working, again, I'm going to just sing the praises of Sidney Beaumont, our amazing producer, and uh, Rachel Cotine, our amazing co-producer, not to mention all the other wonderful people associated with it. But, um, you know, what we all said from the beginning was the only way that we can make this entertaining and engaging for audiences if, if we make it about people. So, you know, we... We wanted to present a diversity of opinions, a diversity of issues surrounding coal. And so we kind of set out saying, okay, what are the different ways in which coal affects people's lives? There's the economic uh, factors. There are the public health factors. There are what happens when you mine coal, what happens when you burn coal, what happens to that waste. And we were able to find um, stories all around the country from people who were deeply personally affected by. And so that was, again, you know, I said so before this, this whole thing was such an eye opening experience for me, you know. I had never heard about coal ash. I mean, I, I think with, during the Dan River spill, I was vaguely aware of it. Um, but, you know, the issue of coal ash, and again, you mentioned North Carolina, one of the stories that we tell in the film takes place in North Carolina. Um, not really a coal state, um, but there are coal-fired power plants all over the country, fewer thanks to um, the work that people like yourselves have done. But when you burn coal, you're left over with the waste, which is coal ash, and the way that that is disposed of is it's just dumped in pits, unlined dugout pits, usually located next to waterways. They take this toxic ash, dump it in the hole, and pour water on it. And that's considered a reasonable and fine way to dispose of <laughs> toxic waste. I worked on a film a number of years ago uh, called Crude about... Um, a, a case in uh, Ecuador where um, 
uh, indigenous communities are dealing with the oil waste there. I've and seen it. I actually studied that issue right when I was um, right out of college. That was like one of the issues I really it was just heartbreaking and fascinating story. But yes, it, it is an endlessly fascinating story. It was the same issue. They took the, the, the toxic materials, the drilling muds and all the toxic fluids and dumped them in online pits in the Amazon rainforest. Um, and I was so appalled by that just and thought, well, that could never happen in the United States. You know, we, we would have better ways of disposing with our, of our toxic waste than happened here where no one was looking. Um, but that is wrong when it comes to coal. Uh, you know, and so the, these toxic pits of uh, coal ash are just left there to, um, you know, in many cases, as like in, in North Carolina, to infect the groundwater. And, you know, you have people who can't drink their, their water, can't bathe in their, their tap water because of the waste. I think that's one thing that you do really well in the film is uh, you lift up these things that I think people take for granted uh, that are happening uh, elsewhere that uh, we think couldn't happen here, that somebody's taking care of the, the making sure the air is clean, right? Nobody's going nobody's gonna to allow the air to be so polluted it makes people sick. Nobody's going to allow toxic waste to get dumped into online pits in the ground. And you, the film does such a great job of, of elevating some of that. And I'm wondering, as you, uh, as you have the film now kind of in the rearview mirror and there are headlines about things like the, this trillion-ton iceberg breaking off of Antarctica today or, or yeah. as we are talking now, or uh, there's this article that's gone viral in New York Magazine about this apocalyptic future we may all be facing when it comes to climate change. Uh, you have done such a good job of lifting up things I think people either took for granted or didn't understand. What do you hope people will take away now as they are maybe looking at these headlines or uh, you know, as they're uh, some lessons that you learn from making the film that you hope people will take away from watching it? Well, I, I think, um, you know, when I, I read that news this morning about the, uh, the massive iceberg uh, that just broke off of Antarctica, it's, you know, it's so unbelievably daunting. And I, it, it's, it's terrifying. It's depressing. It's, it's, um, it, 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 it sounds apocalyptic. And, and it may be. Um, but I think that you know, one one of the another challenge of the film was trying to make it appealing to people, regardless of what they thought about coal going in. And one of the things that we talked about was if we talk too much about climate, a it's going to turn people off. B there have already been so many films that focus solely on climate, and C there are a lot of people in this country, far more, you know, when we were out um, traveling the country, like I, I live in Brooklyn, I'm a, a liberal New York filmmaker, you know, <laughs> I, I, but I grew up in a small town way in central New York, which is in a very red area. My, I have family members who voted for Trump. We fight over the Thanksgiving dinner table. Um, I, I was surprised though at, at how many people I met traveling the country who simply do not believe that climate change is either real or if it is real, that it's uh, man-made. I, I was stunned at, at the number of people um, who were not convinced that all the, the, the evidence was in on climate change. Um, but I think that with this film, you don't have to believe that climate change is real to understand that we need to get off coal. Um, you know, we did, we, 
obviously climate is the most urgent, important issue of our time. Um, but what if you don't believe that, you know, that, that and there are a, a lot of people in our country who, who don't believe that. So the, the thing about coal that I, I think is so interesting, one of the things about it is that take, even if you take climate out of the equation, there are still a plethora of reasons, public health, economic, all kinds of other reasons why we need to get off of it um, and really why we need to get off of fossil fuels in general. There are there are so many reasons to move away from coal, even for people who are not persuaded by the news about climate change. And for, for people who are persuaded, I hope they'll take some hope from all the progress that's been made that the film also captures about uh, how how dramatically we have shifted away from coal and that that shift is going to continue. And obviously we need to do that without leaving communities behind, which is another piece of the story you tell really beautifully. Absolutely. That's a a really important part of it. Um, And, you know, I think we we all, and I'm going to venture a guess that most of the audience for your show, um, our environmentalists are already probably, um, you know, believe in climate change, care about climate, care about the environment, care about clean air, clean water. So it can be so depressing, you know, when you read about Scott Pruitt and all of the idiotic things that are happening under this current administration. One of the things that I found uh, encouraging in making this film um, is that the, the change is inevitable to go to renewable energy. Um, other places in the world are already doing it. We have the ability to do it. We just need the political will. But even without the political will, there's a lot of positive change that is happening um, in the private sector, within municipalities, people on the grassroots level making changes in their own communities. And that's really where it's going to happen. It's not going to happen at the federal level. So as horrifying a political time we are living in now, they only have so much power. We have more power than they do when it really comes down to it. In many ways, especially when it comes to issues of of climate, um, there are all kinds of exciting things happening in cities and municipalities, and in in the private sector, all across the country and around the world. And that is something to be uh, upbeat about. When there are very few things to be <laughs> upbeat about, when you read the newspapers these days. Yay! We need. I needed to hear that, even though I knew it. I still helps me to carry it. (laughs) Uh, But I actually have a question about film. Sure. (laughs) As kind of a, you know, both an incredible art form, but also a tool for social change. And it's funny, I I was a big reader growing up. I still am. So I always kind of viewed film as like candy entertainment Mm -hmm. until my little brother became a filmmaker. And since then, I've really kind of become to see it as an incredible art form and also an incredible tool for activism. And I, you know, I got to work on the first season of Years of Living Dangerously with Marianne, where I was kind of in front of the camera and since then have been able to produce a couple of small pieces on my own and be behind the camera, which I really love. But I, one thing that like kind of my mission in life at the moment is how to make climate change more interesting to more people. So very related to um, what you were just talking about, because it is obviously such a challenge to make really compelling content that reaches people and not only in an intellectual way, but an emotional way. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I had the opportunity to work with some incredible people in New York. I actually just moved from Brooklyn myself about a year ago, um, where I worked with um, you know people who came out of the creative agency space who were trained on Madison Avenue, um, who were just incredible creatives and artists. And um, they, I really learned a lot about the creative process and um, and film in general through working with them. And you know coming from a kind of a more traditional climate campaigning background, that was just a whole new world. And it was really um, exciting and also frustrating to me (laughs) that the climate movement doesn't employ those tools um, at a greater rate. And I think the most obvious reason is because they're not cheap. You know, good film costs a lot of money. (laughs) But also I think it has to do with kind of a process, you know, how a lot of organizations are set up are not kind of they don't facilitate that kind of emphasis on creative and content. And I'm just wondering if you can speak to that both as a filmmaker, like how we can use film um, as a social change tool better. And also how can the climate movement better work with creatives um, to, to tell these stories in a more compelling way? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And and I, I don't know if there's really a clear answer to it. You know, there's there's a couple of schools of thinking of the the, the value of film uh, as a tool for activism. Um, you know, I, I think sometimes there's a tendency to kind of preach to the choir. Um, and I think personally, I think that there's there's real value to that. You know, um, it, it can keep people inspired and can uh, educate people about something they already feel passionately about, but it can maybe uh, give them more information that they can use to educate their friends and loved ones and strangers, you know, you always hope that when you make something in the film realm that uh, has an activist bent to it, that you might reach some people who don't already agree with you or or who aren't already inclined to agree with you. And that's, we really tried to do that with this film. Um, As I said before, like you don't, you can be a climate denier and see this film and still walk away saying, yeah, maybe coal isn't really very good for us, you know? Um, but I, I think, I think that, um, you know, there's, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of ways to express oneself. I think the film has its place along with, you know, now with social media, but it's certainly uh, the written word, you know, books and magazine articles and newspaper articles. You know, there's all these tools um, at our disposal. I, I do think that sometimes in the activism world, there can be a tendency to uh, search for perfection as opposed to progress. You know, it's the Voltaire staying, <laughs> you know, uh, perfection is the enemy of progress. Some, some, something like that. I'm, I'm mangling the, the phrase. But but that, um, y- you know, I, I think especially on the left, we, we sometimes have a tendency to be like, well, if, if, if there's one part of your message that I disagree with, you're no good. You know, um, like the, the people who said, well, if Bernie Sanders didn't win the primary, I'm not voting because I have issues with Hillary Clinton and well, look how we ended up, you know, um, (laughs) would, would Hillary Clinton have really been that bad? Would we have Scott Pruitt in the EPA, you know, if you're an environmentalist, you know, so, so I, I think that that's something that, that the, the movement needs to be a little bit more, um, self examining on. And it's also, um, pretty counterintuitive to creativity in general. Like it's really hard. Like there, like that piece that just came out in New York magazine. I don't know if you got a chance to read it, but I've not read it yet. Um, it, do it with a, 
a whiskey. Yeah, I'm, I'm scared. I'm scared. <laughs> or is I, it I, I don't yeah. want to. <laughs> um, but, you know, for the most part, he was right. There were a couple of factual errors. But, you know, he just told it, I mean, in this beautiful, artful way that you just don't see. You know, you don't see climate stories written like that very often. It was very poetic and very, like, visceral. Like, it really painted a picture um, but because there was a couple of smaller factual errors, a lot of people on in our in the climate movement just totally wrote it off and said, you know, really like pretty like intense pushback. Right. Um, but you know, it also traveled further than most climate articles I've ever seen. You know, like a lot of my friends on Facebook were posting it and they never post stuff on climate change. So it's kind of like weighing, I don't know, it's like there was such a it's almost like a militant dog dogma that doesn't actually work well with create creativity and art because there's always a little bit of fluidity to it. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you just, you just said it perfectly. I, I think that the, um, you know, the, the, there's, there's a pressure on documentary filmmakers who are making issue films to, to get it right and to be accurate and make sure that, that your, your facts are correct. And sometimes facts can be the enemy of poetry you know, of, of, of creativity. And so it's always a push and pull of, you know, I, I think, you know, a film like From the Ashes that has so much pressure on it to make sure that we got every single fact correct and that we were super accurate about everything. Um, you know, I think sometimes, well, I, I think always, you know, you know, cre- sometimes creativity takes the back burner to the, the, making sure that, that your information is right. You know, and um, and that's that's a, that's a struggle, you know, because it can be limiting. You know, sometimes you, you'd like to say, oh, wow, well, this story would play so much better if this thing weren't true. But the first, uh, you know, responsibility, I think, for a documentary filmmaker, when you're talking about factual issues is to get your facts right. I think that's really, really, really important. Um, I think to not do that, get you know, it, it, it is a disservice to not only your audience, but to the entire form. You know, um, we've seen so much of this idiocy about fake news that the real idea of fake news, which is, you know, that thing that your right wing uncle forwards to you, <laughs> that's fake news, you know. Uh, my father and my right. <laughs> that, that you respond with the Snopes link and say, sorry, dad, this actually isn't true. Can you stop doing this? Um, you know, th- that's what was intended by this idea of fake news. And it's been co-opted to just mean the news. I think when when we get it wrong, it does a disservice to everyone. There is always that push and pull between how can I tell a story entertainingly and creatively um, and in a way that will connect with people um, on an emotional level, because ultimately that's I think that's the, the greatest tool or the greatest uh, thing that film can do as as a medium is connect emotionally um, to, to. I think uh, I think we're going to have to wrap up here, but I just sure. want to say that uh, I think you um, you did a great job of that in From the Ashes of both. Uh, getting the facts right and also telling a powerful emotional story. So that's a difficult balance to strike and uh, you, you struck it successfully. So I want to thank you. And I also want to thank you for, um, for doing a great job of lifting up all sides of a very emotional debate. Uh, You know, there, there weren't good guys and bad guys. There's just a real struggle in this country. We know we have to move beyond coal and we don't want to leave anybody behind. And, 
I thought you just told everyone's story with a great deal of compassion and respect. And, and uh, I think I've heard that same feedback from folks all over the country as well. So um, thank you very much That's for thank you. lending your, yeah, thanks for lending your great storytelling to this story. And thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Okay. All right, that just about does it for us. Marianne and I just want to thank you so much for listening. Thanks to our sponsor, the Sierra Club, and also huge thanks to the great band River Wireless for our theme music. This episode was produced by the spectacular Zach Mack, who has been so busy producing his breakout hit podcast, Binge Mode, about Game of Thrones that... We're sure he has not had time to read the viral New York Magazine climate article. So, Zach, you need to get up speed and read that article. Subscribe to us on iTunes and please also leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us get the word out. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and we are posting all of our episodes and updates and info about upcoming episodes on our Twitter page, which is at NPLH Podcast. So please follow us there and tweet at us. We will reply. We love hearing from you. If you like our show and have any questions, comments, suggestions, or want to be a part of our show by reading a dinner party climate fact for an upcoming episode, tweet at us. Again, we're at NPLH Podcast. And remember, there's no place like home.